All right, if you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn back to Genesis 41. So in this chapter, we will see that Joseph's day has finally arrived. It's been 13 years since Joseph was sold by his brothers into slavery. It's been two years since he interpreted the chief cupbearer's dream and asked him, really in some ways pleaded with him, show me this kindness to remember me before Pharaoh. It's been two years since then, and he was forgotten. Now, we don't know what Joseph was thinking, what he's been thinking all of these years. We don't know if he was eagerly awaiting his time to rise up to some sort of authoritative position as revealed in his dream from Genesis 37. We don't know if he was anticipating something to happen or for his circumstances to suddenly change. But what we do know is that the Lord has been with him through it all and that he has been faithful no matter his circumstances. And now that we're here in chapter 41, in a sudden turn of events, Joseph will be brought before Pharaoh to interpret Pharaoh's dreams, and then he'll be elevated to a position of great authority in Egypt. Earlier we read the first 24 verses here where we saw Joseph being brought before Pharaoh, being told his dream. Now we'll read verses 25 through 42 where we will see his interpretation, then his proposal, and then Pharaoh's response. So let's go ahead and read verses 25 through 42 and then we will pray. So then Joseph said to Pharaoh, the dreams of Pharaoh are one. God has revealed to Pharaoh what he is about to do. The seven good cows are seven years, and the seven good ears are seven years. The dreams are one. The seven lean and ugly cows that came up after them are seven years, and the seven empty ears blighted by the east wind are also seven years of famine. It is as I told Pharaoh, God has shown to Pharaoh what he is about to do. There will come seven years of great plenty throughout all the land of Egypt, but after them there will arise seven years of famine, and all the plenty will be forgotten in the land of Egypt. The famine will consume the land, and the plenty will be unknown in the land by reason of the famine that will follow, for it will be very severe." And the doubling of Pharaoh's dream means that the thing is fixed by God and God will shortly bring it about. Now, therefore, let Pharaoh select a discerning and wise man and set him over the land of Egypt. Let Pharaoh proceed to appoint overseers over the land and take one-fifth of the produce of the land of Egypt during the seven plentiful years. And let them gather all the food of these good years that are coming and store up grain under the authority of Pharaoh for food in the cities and let them keep it. That food shall be a reserve for the land against the seven years of famine that are to occur in the land of Egypt so that the land may not perish through the famine. This proposal pleased Pharaoh and all his servants. And Pharaoh said to his servants, can we find a man like this in whom is the Spirit of God? Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, since God has shown you all this, there is none so discerning and wise as you are. You shall be over my house and all my people shall order themselves as you command. Only as regards the throne will I be greater than you. 
And Pharaoh said to Joseph, See, I have set you over all the land of Egypt. Then Pharaoh took the signet ring from his hand and put it on Joseph's hand and clothed him in garments garments of fine linen and put a gold chain about his neck. This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we come before you in the name of Jesus Christ by the powerful working of the Holy Spirit who has brought us from death to life. I pray this morning that you will stir up our affections for you through the preaching of your word. Open our eyes to the blessings that we have in you. You, O God, are the highest blessing. You are the greatest treasure. You alone are worthy of our worship. And I pray that your praises, the praise of your glorious name would sound forth here in Pasadena and all throughout this globe, this world that you have given us. I pray specifically this morning for the saints in the Philippines and for Rusty as he'll be traveling there to visit with family and to assist in the continuing work in the church in Santiago. I pray that Rusty will be an encouragement to the saints and that he will be encouraged by them as as well. I pray for Mila as she will stay here, that she would be comforted in his absence, but eagerly awaiting Rusty's return. And we pray just for safe travels for him. And oh God, we, we, we thank you for opportunities like this, opportunities to partner with churches around the world and to see your name high and lifted up. So I pray that you would be glorified in your church this Lord's Day. I pray that you would help us to see your infinite worth. And as our eyes are open to your infinite worth, oh God, I pray that we will turn from our idols and renounce our detestable ways. Oh, help us to see the beauty and the glory of Christ Jesus, our Lord. Help us to see that we are unworthy of your grace, but yet we are recipients of such undeserved favor. And I pray that we might live in light of your grace, in light of the gospel. Our lives, our good works would not be done in an effort to please you in the sense of being justifying to bring us favor, but that our works would be done out of gratitude because of what you have done, because it pleased you to send your son in our place, to live the righteous life that we could not live and to die the death that we could not bear to die. Oh, I pray that all that we do, the lives that we live in Christ would be done out of deep.
deep gratitude and out of deep anguish over that former way of life that we once lived. Knowing that those sins, the very sinful nature that resided within us was what nailed the Son of God to the tree. So help us, O God, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen. So I'm sure that many of you know what it's like to have your day take a complete 180 because of something that was unexpected. Maybe you woke up like you would any other day. You went through your usual morning routine. You started to do whatever it is you planned to do that day. And then all of a sudden, your day completely changed course. You know, maybe your car wouldn't start and you couldn't get to work. Maybe there was a natural disaster that happened. Maybe a storm came through, a tornado or something came through. Maybe a tree fell on your car. Maybe a tree fell through the roof of your house. Maybe it was breaking news that changed the course of your day. I remember um, September 11th, 2001. I showed up to school at University of Houston. Expected to go to class just like any other day. When all of a sudden, classes were canceled. For that day and I believe for that week. Maybe it wasn't natural disaster, breaking news, maybe there was someone showed up to your home, an unexpected arrival of a family member or a friend that you hadn't seen in many years, and all of a sudden your plans changed. Or maybe it was something that was more expected, but you just didn't know the day or the time. Another personal anecdote here, I remember several years ago attending our annual meeting in January on Sunday evening, expected to go home eat dinner, start getting ready for bed. Thought it would be just like any other night, yet on that night, Kristen went into labor and we were up all night welcoming our daughter into this world. I could go on and on, but you, I'm sure, know what it's like to wake up thinking this day will be like every other day, and then all of a sudden, your circumstances change. Well, that's Joseph's experience here in Genesis 41. He would have gotten up in the morning, gone about his duties, just like he would every other day, when all of a sudden, Pharaoh's officials show up, and they tell him, get ready, and then they bring him before Pharaoh. And just like that, Joseph's life takes a 180. Not only did the course of this particular day change for Joseph, but his entire life changed. So as we consider this particular day in the life of Joseph, we'll begin by looking at Pharaoh's two dreams. We see this in verses one through eight. These dreams will serve as the catalyst for Pharaoh's desperation. He needs someone to interpret his dreams, but none of his magicians or wise men could. And so in verses nine through 24, Pharaoh hears of Joseph, and so he has Joseph brought before him, and then he tells him his dreams. And unlike the magicians of the land, Joseph is the only one who could interpret Pharaoh's dreams, and we see that in verses 25 through 36. And as we'll see, as Joseph interprets and then gives a proposal, this pleases Pharaoh. 
and then we'll see his response, at least the beginning of it. We'll see his response in verses 37 through 42. And as we walk through this passage, just a few themes we'll pull out. As, as we've done so many times, we'll consider God's providence. Um, it, it is such a common theme throughout this story and really throughout the scriptures that it's always worth noting how God is the one orchestrating all of these events. So we'll see God's providence. We'll also see the display of God's sovereign rule that extends even over Egypt. And we could say, as we know, even over the whole universe. And then we'll consider verse 42. That's where we'll conclude. And how verse 42 provides us with an illustration of the gospel. We'll see the radical change in Joseph's life being symbolized through his putting on of new clothes. And then after that, we will partake of the Lord's Supper. So now that you know the plan, now you know where we're going, let's go ahead and turn our attention back to verse 1 of chapter 41. And we read in the first few words, after two whole years. So this takes us back to the events we saw last week in chapter 40. Remember Joseph, he's in charge of the royal prison. Pharaoh, when he became angry at two of his chief officials, and he throws them into the prison. They were placed under Joseph's care. And then one particular night, each man had a dream. They both had two separate dreams, closely related but different, and so they came to Joseph. He asked them, why are they troubled? They tell him there's no interpreter. He interprets their dreams, and then their dreams come to pass. The chief baker would be executed in three days. The chief cupbearer would be, would be elevated to his position of a, a, to serve Pharaoh in three days. And so after he gave that interpretation to the chief cupbearer, he said, remember me, Mention me to Pharaoh, get me out of this house. I was stolen out of the land of the Hebrews, and I've done nothing. I'm innocent. There's no reason why I should be here. But then as we read at the end of chapter 40 in verse 23, the chief cupbearer did not remember Joseph, but forgot him. So he was forgotten. Two years in prison, but here we are. After this two years of being forgotten by the cupbearer, Pharaoh is going to have some, a couple of dreams, and Joseph's life will suddenly change. Joseph doesn't know it. This night when Pharaoh has dreams, Joseph is most likely sleeping like he would any other night. But Pharaoh has troubling dreams as we see in verses 1 through 7. In his first dream, we see in verse 1 that Pharaoh was standing by the Nile, And then in verses 2 and 3, he sees cows coming up out of the Nile, and then they're standing on the bank of the Nile. And it's just important to note, um, as many of you know, if you've done any study of ancient Egypt, you'll know that the Nile River was a very important Um, aspect of life in Egypt. It was very important to the life of Egypt, economically, I mean, and and agriculturally, and every year the Nile River overflowed its banks. And what would happen, the fields would be soaked and it would deposit a, a, a layer of rich silt and would make the ground very fertile. So this yearly occurrence took place because of heavy summer rains in the south. And if these rains did not come, this would greatly devastate Egypt and potentially lead to famine. 
Now, I didn't go very far down this trail, but Philip Riken, some of you might be familiar with that name, Philip Riken noted that in ancient Egypt, there were three Egyptian gods who were associated with the Nile River. So if the Nile River was to dry up and not overflow, it would not only devastate Egypt economically, but it would also challenge the viability of the Egyptian gods. I mean, just think about it. If the waters dry up or if the levels are low and it does not overflow, it would mean that either the Egyptian gods no longer favored the Egyptians, maybe the people fell out of their favor, or maybe there's something or someone greater than the Egyptian gods. So bring this to your attention because in Genesis chapter 37, beginning there, God is now bringing his people to Egypt. And there in Egypt, when we get through the life of Joseph and then through Moses, the, the Israelites in Egypt, God is going to show his power and his sovereignty, not only over his people, but also over all of Egypt. And this display of power and sovereignty begins here with Pharaoh's dreams. And subsequently, Joseph, through his, through his interpretation of the dreams, as those dreams come to pass, we will see God's power and God's sovereignty. So what are the dreams? Well, the first dream, Pharaoh is standing by the Nile. He sees seven healthy cows coming up out of the Nile, along with seven sickly cows. Two groups of cows standing on the bank of the Nile. And as he sees here in verse 4, these sickly cows, the ugly thin cows, they ate the seven attractive plump cows. And then after this, Pharaoh woke up. And then he has another dream, beginning in verse 5. He falls asleep and dreamed a second time. And this time he sees seven healthy grains or ears of grain. And he sees these seven healthy ears of grain swallowed up by seven unhealthy, sickly ears of grain, and then he woke up again, and his spirit was greatly troubled. And as we see in verse 8, his spirit was greatly troubled, and he sent and called for all the magicians of Egypt and all its wise men. Pharaoh told them his dreams, but there was none who could interpret them to Pharaoh. So think about what happened. He calls his magicians, his wise men, no one. There was none who could interpret these dreams. As John Currid notes, they are impotent in the matter. His magicians, his wise men were impotent. They were unable to interpret these dreams. And then Currid goes on to note how this text serves as a polemic against Egyptian magical practice. For as we'll be reminded here, interpretations belong to God. You know, we still talk about ancient Egypt today. You know, we do. We, 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 and there's, there's TV shows on ancient Egypt. I mean, it's, it's, it's fascinating to consider how advanced ancient Egypt was. They're impressive. Their accomplishments were impressive. Yet, as we think here and go back to Genesis 41, in this impressive civilization, I mean, th these are the people who built pyramids that are still standing today. In this impressive civilization, there was no one who could help Pharaoh. There was no one who could interpret his dreams. So what will Pharaoh do? Will he have to wait for someone who can interpret his dreams? No, because God has already brought the man 
who will interpret Pharaoh's dreams. God has already brought this Hebrew slave to Egypt. And so Pharaoh will hear of this man because his chief cupbearer will finally remember this man. End of chapter 40, he forgot him. He did not remember him. But now, two years later, in verses 9 through 11, we see the cupbearer saying, I remember my offenses today, and then tells Pharaoh about his dream, along with the chief baker. And then in verse 12, he says, a young Hebrew was there with us, a servant of the captain of the guard. When we told him, he interpreted our dreams to us, giving an interpretation to each man according to his dream. And as he interpreted to us, so it came about. I was restored to my office, and the baker was hanged. He doesn't even mention Joseph's name. He just refers to him as a young Hebrew who correctly interpreted their dreams. The Hebrew people were insignificant at this time. I mean, remember, when they come to Egypt, when Jacob comes to Egypt, we we see 70 people, a band of 70 people coming to Egypt. This is an insignificant group of people who Pharaoh probably doesn't even know about. But here he's told about this young Hebrew who can interpret dreams. So what does he do? Verse 14, he sent and called Joseph, and they quickly brought him out of the pit. Remember, Pharaoh, his spirit was troubled. He's desperate. He's looking for someone to interpret his dream. And so now he calls for this Hebrew slave who was locked away in his prison. And so he calls for Joseph, and they quickly brought him out of the pit. Remember, Joseph was not expecting any of this. He would have gone about his day just like any other day. And now here we are. We see Pharaoh's officials coming for him. And then they quickly bring him out of the pit. So you'll notice there, this word pit is used. Joseph was in prison. He was not in a literal pit. But this takes us back to chapter 37, when his brothers threw him into a pit. So this should remind us, that that's what the language here is doing. He's taken out of this pit. No, he's in prison, not in a pit, but we see he even referred to it as a pit in chapter 40, verse 15. Now he's taken out of the pit because this reminds us of the events that have taken place up to this point. Just think about it. If... Joseph's brothers did not throw him into that pit and then sell him to slave traders. Joseph would not be standing here this day before Pharaoh. Joseph would not be standing before Pharaoh if he had not been falsely accused by Potiphar's wife and then thrown into the king's prison. And Joseph would not be standing here this day if the chief cupbearer had remembered him sooner. If he remembered him sooner, Joseph might have been let go. He might have been returned to his family in Canaan. But as we know, because God is the one orchestrating every single event here, we can say that the chief cupbearer remembered him at the exact right time. Joseph was in prison because God had brought him to Egypt for this exact moment. This was all God's design. 
providential dealings with Joseph throughout his enslavement and his imprisonment remind us of God's orchestrating hand bringing all of this to pass. And it's not as though Joseph has been merely dangling by a thread like a lifeless puppet. For as we've been reminded throughout the Joseph narrative, the Lord has been with him through it all. And now here, God is the one bringing Joseph to stand before Pharaoh. But before Joseph will be brought before Pharaoh, he'll be cleaned up. In the second half of verse 14, we see that he shaved himself and he changed his clothes and he came in before Pharaoh. He had to be made presentable to be brought before the king. So here he is, quickly brought out of the pit. He's cleaned up, made presentable to stand before the king because Pharaoh needs someone to interpret his dream. Look at verse 15. Pharaoh said to Joseph, I've had a dream and there is no one who can interpret it. I've heard it said that of you that when you hear a dream, you can interpret it. So Pharaoh has a dream. There's no one to interpret. And he heard that Joseph can interpret dreams, but Joseph is not going to promote his abilities. Notice how he responds. Verse 16, it is not in me. God will give Pharaoh a favorable answer. So Joseph gives all the credit to God. Joseph's saying, it's not in me to interpret dreams. It is God who interprets these dreams. And this is consistent with what we saw last week in verse 8 of chapter 40 when he told to the the baker and the cupbearer, do not interpretations belong to God. And now he's saying the same thing essentially as he stands before Pharaoh. He's giving all the credit to God. He magnifies God's power and ability. He takes no credit unto himself. I don't know about you, but too often... I find myself doing the exact opposite, at least internally where you can't see it. For instance, I'll tell myself here, uh, there are times when I've heard someone quote something that I've said, and then they attribute it to someone else. I remember one of the first times this happened. It's probably 15, 18 years ago, something. It's been a while. Uh, But I was teaching a Bible study. And then a week later, someone who was at that Bible study repeated something that I had said, and they attributed it to someone else. And I wanted to say, I was the one who said that. That was me who said that profound statement, not this other person. (laughs) But you know what's wrong with that, right? That's me wanting all the credit, wanting the glory, the approval. That's me wanting you to say, you are so wise. Every word that comes from your mouth is just pure gold sure you've been there. Especially dads in your home. You want your kids to say that, right? And your wives. But when I want the credit, I am elevating myself above God. Instead of merely being an instrument in the hands of God, I want to be the one who gets the credit, the glory. But we must remember that all truth belongs to God, not to us, not to me. And that's why God uses Joseph here. He doesn't use me, and I would say he doesn't use you for the, probably this very reason, because if you're anything like me, you'd be tempted when Pharaoh says this to say, you know what? I can interpret dreams. I've done that before. You see what? That's not what Joseph said, is it? He didn't say, I can do this. 
I've done this before. He says, it is not in me. God will give Pharaoh a favorable answer. He gives God all the credit. He expresses great confidence in God, and he'll continue to do so as he interprets this dream. So after Joseph tells Pharaoh that God will give him a favorable answer, Pharaoh will recount his dreams, and then as we see repeated once again at the end of verse 24, I told it to the magicians, but there was no one who could explain it to me. Verse 8, Pharaoh tells his dreams, and there was none who could interpret them. Verse 15, Pharaoh tells Joseph, I've had a dream, and there is no one who can interpret it. And then in verse 24, I told it to the magicians, but there was no one who could explain it to me. Pharaoh's spirit is troubled. There's no one in the land of Egypt that can interpret his dream. But here stands this young Hebrew slave whom the Lord has brought to Egypt for this very purpose, to stand before the mighty king of Egypt and interpret Pharaoh's dream. I don't want you to forget the, the stakes here. Pharaoh's not a weak king. Pharaoh is a mighty king. And here's this young Hebrew slave who's been locked away. He's, he's been enslaved and then imprisoned in Pharaoh's uh, prison, in, his, in the king's prison. And now he stands before this mighty man who could very easily have his head removed, just as with the chief baker. But yet, Joseph is going to stand here and interpret his dreams boldly and with confidence in God, and then he's going to give him a proposal. And so let's look at these things. In verse 25, he begins by telling Pharaoh that the dreams of Pharaoh are one. They're two similar dreams, but they're one interpretation. And what God has done, God has revealed to Pharaoh what he's about to do. So the almighty God has revealed to the mighty Pharaoh what's about to happen in this next 14-year period. What God is about to do. Not just revealing the future to Pharaoh, but the almighty God is revealing what he's about to bring to pass in the kingdom of the mighty Pharaoh. And so these seven, he tells him the seven good cows, seven years, then the seven ears of corn, or the ears of grain, same thing, seven years, then the seven ugly cows and the seven unhealthy ears of grain, seven years. And so it's really, if seven years and seven years. And so before he's about to tell him what God is going to do, once again in verse 28, it is as I told Pharaoh, God has shown to Pharaoh what he is about to do. God is showing Pharaoh what's about to come, but it's not just what's going to happen in the future. God is showing Pharaoh what he, God, is about to do. And what will God do? Well, verse 29, he's about to send seven years of abundance. Verse 30, he's going to send seven years of famine. And during the seven years of famine, the abundance, the plenty will be forgotten. The famine will consume the land. It will be very severe, as we see in verse 31. The plenty will be unknown in the land by reason of the famine that will follow, for it will be very severe. This will be a national calamity. Famine will cover the whole land and to reinforce the certainty of this interpretation, Joseph says in verse 32, the doubling of Pharaoh's dreams 
means that the thing is fixed by God. So this is certain. There can be no doubt that that's why you had two dreams. And not only is this thing fixed, but this thing will come about, as we see at the end of verse 32, very shortly. God will shortly bring it about. So that's the interpretation. Seven years of abundance, followed by seven years of severe famine, and these things will commence very soon. But that's not where Joseph stops. He then offers a proposal. He, in verse 33, proposes to Pharaoh that he should select a discerning and wise man. He should set him over the land of Egypt. In verse 34, he should appoint overseers who will take one-fifth of the produce of the land during this time of abundance. So they'll store these things up as a reserve. And if Pharaoh agrees to this proposal, just think about it. This will be a difficult sell on the people. You're having an abundance, but Pharaoh's going to take a fifth of that. Joseph's proposal here is essentially increased taxation. As one commentator notes, this would be unpopular, and it would be a public relations nightmare. Our nation has been through that. We're going through that. But I don't want to get caught up in policy. I don't want to get caught up in the policies Joseph is proposing here. Rather, I want to step back and consider what God is doing. We've already considered his providential hand in bringing Joseph here to this very place at this very time. But that's not all that's happening. In fact, God is showing himself to be the God of gods. And how is he doing it? First of all, God shows that his wisdom is unmatched. It's unmatched by the mighty Egyptians I mean, just think about it. Pharaoh, his magicians, his wise men, they were unable to interpret this dream. Their sorcery was impotent to interpret this dream. But that's not the case for this Hebrew slave. This lowly Hebrew slave was able to interpret Pharaoh's dream because Pharaoh's, because God ultimately interpreted Pharaoh's dream. And he did this through Joseph. So the Lord used Joseph to make his wisdom known. And not only will he make his wisdom known through Joseph's interpretation, but also through his proposal. I mean, that's why Pharaoh later on is going to say, can we find a man like this in whom is the Spirit of God? Since God has shown you all this, there is none so discerning and wise as you are. God is displaying his wisdom. The God of Abraham, of Isaac, and of Jacob is displaying to Pharaoh and to all Egypt that his wisdom is unmatched as he uses the insignificant things of the world to shame the wisdom of the wise. And in this case, God shows himself to be wiser than the wise Egyptians through a lowly slave. Additionally, God shows himself to be the God of gods and that he not only knows the future, but he directs the future. In this interpretation, God shows himself to know what is to come. But how does he know what is to come? Because he ordains all that comes to pass. He's the one who is bringing this to pass. In verse 25, 
Joseph tells Pharaoh, God has revealed what he is about to do. Verse 32, after he interprets the dream, we see that God will shortly bring it about. So God is the one doing this. God is the one who is going to do this, and he's going to bring this about soon. So God is demonstrating that he not only knows the future, but he also directs all that comes to pass. In this case, both the seven years of abundance and the seven years of famine will happen at God's direction. Furthermore, through the fulfillment of this dream, the God of the Hebrews will show himself to be more than a territorial or a tribal God. At the end of this chapter, we see Pharaoh's dream coming to pass. And by this, God demonstrates that he is not limited to a specific place or a specific people. He's not only the God of the Hebrews, he's also the God of the Egyptians. He's not only the God of Canaan, he's also the God of Egypt. And to show this, he'll exercise his authority over the Nile River. God is showing that he is the God of gods. Absolute sovereignty belongs to him, for the earth and its fullness are his. Therefore, after the seven years of abundance, I would say we can assume from the text, although it doesn't say explicitly, but we can assume that he will prevent the Nile River from overflowing its banks, proving himself to be the God of gods and Lord of lords. And as Moses says in Deuteronomy 10, 17, the Lord your God is God of gods and Lord of lords, the great, the mighty, and the awesome God. He is God of all. He created all things. Therefore, all things are at his disposal to do as he wills. And this includes the land of Egypt and the Nile River. And while God is showing himself to be the God of gods and Lord of lords, he's also showing compassion to Pharaoh and to the Egyptians. He's a God who is strong and mighty, but he's also compassionate. Famine's coming, but God is going to provide. And he sounded the alarm to get ready. He didn't have to reveal these things to Pharaoh, but he did. God sent Joseph. He sent Joseph to Pharaoh as a messenger to tell him that famine is coming, to be ready, to be prepared. And you know what? God does the same for us today. God sends messengers to the uttermost parts of the world to declare that there's danger, there's trouble that lies ahead. There's danger for all who fail to heed the words of the Almighty God of gods. But this trouble, this danger, is much more severe than physical danger. This danger is much more severe than physical starvation. The danger that awaits all those who reject Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, that danger is eternal torment. Therefore, as an ambassador of God, I implore everyone here to feast upon Jesus Christ, who is the bread of life. Jesus says, whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. I implore you to come to him, be reconciled to him. 
and those who are reconciled to Christ, those who feast upon Him, who come to Him and will never hunger, who believe in Him and will never thirst, your life will be radically changed in a way similar to what takes place in the life of Joseph. After giving this interpretation, and after giving this proposal, I want you to notice Pharaoh's response to Joseph. Notice how Pharaoh, the mighty Pharaoh, responds to a Hebrew slave who did not deserve to stand in the presence of the king. In verse 37, we see that this proposal pleased Pharaoh. And then in verse 38, and in verse 39, Pharaoh recognizes that Joseph is a wise man in whom is the Spirit of God. Just as Potiphar noticed that the Lord was with Joseph, so did Pharaoh. And just as Potiphar set Joseph over his household, so does Pharaoh, as we see in verse 40. As an aside, the whole time I've been studying this, I can't help but wonder what Potiphar and his wife are thinking. We don't know. But what are they thinking whenever this lowly slave rises to power? Now he's over Pharaoh's house. Anyways, Pharaoh makes Joseph the chief officer in his palace. And at the end of verse 40, he says, Only as regards the throne will I be greater than you. Pharaoh set Joseph over all the land. As we see in verse 41. And then he gives him new clothes. Verse 42, he gives him his signet ring. And he clothed him in garments of fine linen. And he put a gold chain around his neck. We'll examine these things further next week. But right here we see Joseph's life has been radically changed. One day. He started out this day as a forgotten criminal, only to conclude this day being elevated to the right hand of the king of Egypt. He started out this day wearing prison clothes. Now the king, as we see, has given him garments of fine linen. Doesn't this typify the radical change that takes place in the one who heeds the gospel call? The one who comes to Christ will be pardoned. Your sin against the holy God will be forgiven. While this passage doesn't state this explicitly, Joseph's crimes are pardoned. It's implied. I mean, just through the release, through his release and his elevation, it is evident that the charge made against him that kept him in prison has been dropped. That charge no longer stands Otherwise, he wouldn't be here. And that's the blessed reality for all who come to Christ through faith. The record of debt and the legal demands that stood against you have been canceled in Christ Jesus because he satisfied the punishment that your sins deserve. But this radical change is not only seen and the forgiveness of your sins, this radical change is also seen in the fact that you are counted righteous 
in Christ. In Christ, your filthy clothes are removed, and you've been given the righteous garments of Jesus Christ. The old clothes you wore when you were enslaved to sin have been cast off, and now you've been clothed in His righteous robes. And just like Joseph, these new clothes signify a change in our status. We go from unworthy slaves of sin to being seated in the heavenly places. We go from heirs of darkness to become joint heirs with Christ. Just like Joseph. Now his is temporal. It's an earthly change, at least in this passage. This typifies the radical change that takes place in our lives. So just like Joseph, our lives in Christ are radically changed. By the grace of God in Christ, we've been moved from a state of sin to a state of grace. We've been removed from enslavement and bondage to sin. And we've been set free. Our heart's desires have changed. Our eyes have been opened to the dangers and the filth of sin. But even though we've been radically changed, we still struggle with temptation and with sin. Although we've been radically changed now and have put on the righteous robes of Christ now, as Thomas Watson Puritan writes, There's coming a day when we will receive embroidered garments of glory. In this present state of grace, we struggle with sin. But there's coming a day when this battle with temptation and sin, this battle will be over. And about that day, Thomas Watson says, oh, long for it. Yet be content to wait for this full and glorious redemption when you shall be more happy than you can desire, when you shall have that which eye has not seen nor ear heard, nor can it enter into a man's heart to conceive. So the best is yet to come. One day we will be glorified. One day we will no longer walk by faith, for we will see God face to face. But while the best is yet to come, the blessings of heaven are already ours. This is not because we're worthy. This is because we've been found in Christ. Our lives are hidden with Christ in God. And perhaps there's no better place to experience this reality than by partaking of the Lord's Supper together with the saints in the presence of God. The Lord's Supper looks to the work on the cross It looks to the present reality that we have been united to Christ in his death, burial, and resurrection. And it looks forward to the day when he will return for us to take us to be with himself. So as we partake of the Lord's Supper, we have fellowship with Christ as we eat and drink by faith. But we also look forward to that day when we will dine with Christ for all eternity. So in just a moment, we will partake of the Lord's Supper. 
But before we do so, let's pray for his blessing upon our mill. Oh, great God in heaven, we are grateful that you have brought us from death to life and that you have raised us up with Christ and you have seated us in the heavenly places. And one day we will see you face to face but now we behold your glory by faith. Oh God, I pray that you will bless this fellowship mill. Bless this mill of communion that we have with you because of the body that took our sin and because of the blood that was poured out to establish this new covenant of grace. And bless the communion we have with one another because we've been knit together in Jesus Christ. Help us not to forget who you are and who we are and the amazing grace that you've bestowed upon us. Oh, that we might walk in love Love for you and love for our brothers. Love for our sisters. Might you be honored and glorified in our homes. And might this meal that we have here remind us of the heavenly blessings that currently belong to us. We pray this in no other name but the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.